sometimes you have people that have popular songs that are good, and then you listen to all of their other music, and it's like markedly worse. And it's like, how do you account for that? You know, they had a moment of inspiration or transcendence, and it just came out of it. You know, I don't know. But I was thinking, well, maybe I'm one of those guys. You know, maybe maybe I just had this one moment. And, you know, I think what I'm doing now is good, but maybe I'm crazy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Today, we're joined by a Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter, poet, and record producer, amongst other things. You may know him from his breakout record, Cooler Than Me, or his hit, I Took a Pill in Ibiza. But we're here today to get a better understanding of the man behind the music, Mike Posner. Mike isn't shy about speaking out on the importance of mental health and has incorporated many wellness practices into his everyday life, including the Wim Hof breathing method, of which he is a certified instructor. In a world of egos and icons that is much of the music industry, it's admirable to see such an influential person be so real about mental health. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Are you ready to go field tripping? I'm ready to go field tripping. Thank you for having me on. Awesome. All right. So we're going to start by playing a game, something we've never done before on the podcast. Uh, And it's an honor of your first (laughs) it's an honor of your first hit, Cooler Than Me. And Conrad is going to be our judge uh, on who has done the cooler thing. The prize is only mutual admiration, but are you ready? I am ready. All right. First question, you answer, then I'll answer. Uh, what is the coolest thing you've ever done? Summited Mount Everest. That is pretty cool. I will give you that. I would say the coolest thing I've ever done uh, was opening the NASDAQ when uh, Field Trip listed on the exchange back. I guess we listed last July or something like that, but it was pretty friggin' cool to be opening and seeing our logo and our team up on the billboard in Times Square. So, all right, first question. Conrad, who's the winner on that one? Congratulations. Actually, save it till the end. Save it till the end. We'll just tally it up. Uh, okay. Who is the most interesting person you've ever had dinner with? Wow. Interesting person I had dinner with. Gosh. Uh, you go first. I'm still thinking. All right. Uh, it was Robin Leach uh, from Lifestyles of the Rich and the Famous, that TV show from the 80s. He was at a dinner I was at. Uh, I sat across from him. So Robin Leach is the most interesting. It was like up close and personal with Robin Leach. I'm in a far from cheap. I said, this is my peeps all day. Spread love. It's the Brooklyn way. And that was a keep you fit. That Robin Leach? Uh, I don't think that that Robin Leach, um, he was like, I don't know. Did he record a song? Maybe he did, but uh, he was no, the was host of the TV show. Perhaps referencing okay. him. That Robin Leach, yes. Um, that's probably the... I think there's only one Robin Leach. It actually Leach uh, perhaps segues into into my answer. Uh, my answer, I'm going to pick Grandmaster Flash. I oh, sat cool. next to him at a, at a dinner once. And he was explaining to me... We were at this, this fancy dinner that was honoring Jay-Z. And uh, Grandmaster Flash, of course, one of like... Not the first DJ ever, but amongst the first and most uh, influential... DJs in early hip hop and he was telling me about he was the first guy to put the same record on both turntables and he would find a four bar loop 
or it wasn't even a loop yet, a four-bar section of the record that they called the break. And he'd play it on one record, and he'd tee up it on the other one, and he'd flip it over, and you would play the same section, and then go back and forth. So essentially, you were hearing what became the a loop. And you could, he could play this one four-bar section of music forever. And I said, how long did you, from when you made that innovation to when anyone rapped ever, how yeah. long was it? And he said, four years. So I said, wow. if, you never, if you never figured out that, there would have never been a Jay-Z, never been a Biggie Smalls, never been Kendrick Lamar. He said, no. And um, of course, like it was these loops that people began you know, just sort of like shouting on the mic, keeping the party going, we call it emceeing, and then making up little rhymes, and that became the entire media and art form of, of rapping. And so that was a pretty cool dinner. All right, well, I'm going to give you that one off the bat. No, you don't even have to judge. Conrad. It's Conrad's <laughs> choice. <laughs> All right, next question. What's the most romantic thing you've ever done? Gosh, you know, giving up all my... Uh, all my um, tricks secret yeah yeah Yeah, my secrets man it's so personal i had like uh i was dating a wonderful woman once who was she was into horses horseback riding and in particular there's one trainer and and there's like infamous horse trainer and i like somehow tracked this guy down and like and like blindfolded her and drove her there and then took the blindfold off and he was there and it was a whole thing that was pretty cool oh that's awesome um I like that story. That that's very thoughtful. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a cue right out of the the wedding book. But my wife Stephanie and I, uh, our first trip was to Curacao, uh, and we had an amazing time. Um, and probably probably were in love with each other uh, prior to that trip. Uh, but it was pretty awesome. Four years later, when we went back to Curacao and actually got married in front of all of our friends, uh, including getting married by a good friend of mine who's the most atheist. Mormon priest you'll ever meet. Uh, but it was a very romantic experience. It was actually under a full moon, coincidentally, uh, which was super cool as well. So uh, I would say you win. getting married. <laughs> thank you. Uh, but it's Conrad's You haven't choice. done that yet. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done the marriage right. part yet. You got time, my friend. You got time. The world is your oyster. Unless... You do more of the next question, which is the what is the most dangerous thing you've ever done other than getting bitten by a rattlesnake in Colorado? Also summiting Mount Everest without question. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. Without a doubt. Look forward to hearing that. Probably the most dangerous thing I've done uh, was falling out of a tree when I was 15 from about 30 feet up. Uh, I'm probably only alive because my left butt cheek hit the ground before my head smacked a branch a few inches off the ground or mountain biking down Yungus road in Bolivia. Uh, I don't know if you know Yungus road in Bolivia, but it's, if you see the pictures of it, it's one of those roads that are about, you know, six feet wide, maybe eight feet wide. On one side, there's a mountain. On the other side, there's a thousand foot drop cliff uh, and trucks pass each other on, on this road. It's, it's, it's very harrowing. Uh, and riding down uh, on, a, on a mountain bike was a hell of a lot of fun. But at one point, I let myself go too fast, hit the brakes and fishtailed uh, perilously close to the edge of those cliffs. Um, and that's probably one of the most dangerous things I've ever done. Uh, which dovetails nicely into this next question. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done? Also, somebody Mount Everest. 
It checks a lot of boxes, that experience. It sure does. I'd look forward to hearing more about that. And I do have, uh, I have a lot of questions about it. For me, um, you know, certainly mountain biking and skydiving and all that kind of stuff is really dumb, but I'll tell you what probably felt like the dumbest thing I've ever done, which was, uh, when I was an articling student working at a big law firm in Toronto, we started playing this game that every day there was an email that went out to the entire firm about all the new matters that the firm had initiated, um, representation on and it meant nothing to us articling students and it was kind of annoying so we started this joke of trying to forward uh, the email to all of our friends being like look at the exciting news um, and whoever got the email out to uh, everybody else first used to claim spoils for for being the first to do it but it was usually framed as spoils insert explicit, uh, expletive here um, you know as as a term of endearment to our friends. And so one time I did that, it was like in the last two weeks of my articling year. So I'm right at the end and I haven't been fired. And instead of forwarding it to <laughs> my I haven't friend, been I fired. To the entire firm. And I just remember hitting send and then like feeling my whole body well being like, oh my God, I just sent an email to the entire firm that says, spoils bitches <laughs> and uh and i'm like oh my god I, i'm gonna get fired two weeks before the end of my articling firm and uh, before the end of my articling year and then the smallest of miracles happened is i got a bounce back because i guess the firm finally got smart enough from enough people replying all to the message that it didn't go to everybody. You had to have certain access to email the entire firm, which I didn't. So I got a bounce back and no one was any the wiser, but God, I felt really dumb in that moment. All right. Final question. How much does any of, do any of those things that I just asked you about matter for who you want to be in the future? Um, I would say little to none, only in the context of in moments of weakness that you can draw and remember uh, times where you felt weakness before and overcame that. So for me, you know, we talked about Mount Everest, mentioned already three times. That was certainly, a, you know, the hardest thing I've done. And so isn't who I am and doesn't own me any, earn me any points in the present moment. But in, in challenging times, is something I can refer back to and go, hey, remember you did that? You could probably handle this too. So I would say only in that context and in, in none other. A hundred percent. And that's exactly it, which is, you know, I found myself, I don't know, in an emotionally challenging period over the last two weeks. Uh, and as I was driving to work today and came up with this idea and started thinking about what answers I'd come up with, it was a, a good lift, uh, a reminder of, of the things I have accomplished. And, uh, and so it stands there as, as just a reminder. Um, but you know, I certainly hope to be romantic, uh, going forward. I hope to be less dumb. Uh, I probably won't do as many dangerous things, but it's nice to have those all in my belt. Um, and, and in my, least mental photo bank so I can look back at them and to remind myself of, of what this life has actually been, even in times of feeling bleak. So, so thank you for playing the first ever game of who's cooler, uh, inspired by your song cooler than me. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Oh yeah. It's judgment time. Sorry. I forgot. We actually have a prize of mutual admiration. I'll go backwards. Uh, so from the dumbest thing you've ever done 
between climbing Mount Everest from Mike, replying all at the, as you're an intern, Ronan, that's pretty dumb. And I think a lot of people, re, you know, relate to that. So you're going to, you're going to get the dumbest award for that. Yes. Um, question number four, which was, what's the most dangerous thing you did? Um, you know, we got Mike saying Everest and, and you falling out of a tree. Uh, unfortunately, I think uh, for you, Ronan, it's going to be Everest. It's going to take that one for sure. Very dangerous, very perilous. For question number three, the most romantic uh, between surprising your girlfriend with a horseback trainer she'd always want to meet and, and kind of getting married under the sun uh, of your favorite vacation destination. And we're going we're gonna to say that one's probably the winner, Ronan. Uh, you know, marriage kind of trumps it all. Uh, for question number two, around who you've, uh, the most famous person you've had dinner with, most interesting. Most interesting. Not famous. Yes. Not famous. Right, right, right. And interesting. So um, we had Grandmaster Flash and Robin we Leach. had uh, Robin Leach of the Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I think that's correct. We're going to go with the Grandmaster on that one. Oh, yes. Uh, had such a big impact. I, I think that's the winner. So now we're down to our final question. We're at a tie here. We got 2-2. Two, two. So to our very first question, which was... What's the coolest um, thing you've ever done? What's the coolest thing you ever done? We got we got a Nasdaq opening, which is pretty cool and impactful, and we got climbing Mount Everest. And I think by hair, Everest is going to take this one. Oh, there you go! So, well, congratulations, uh, you got a winner. You've you've won my my admiration. You've won mine as well. Awesome. <laughs> so I do want to talk about Everest, but before we get there, maybe it's easiest to go in chronological order. So I'm just going to read the question I wrote down, which is. At least based on what I've seen in the public record, because you are quite a, a public figure, I truly do find your life fascinating. Permit me to explain a little bit. Growing up, I had three ambitions, three key ambitions. First was to play in the NBA, uh, which dream died around the age of 15 when I realized that my Jewish genetics rendered, me, rendered that dream all but impossible. Uh, second was to be a musician. Uh, I played in a few bands in high school, including the short-lived... Uh, act of Ronan and the Gentiles, but my lack of rhythm and tone made that a little stretch too far. <laughs> it was actually a bad. Uh, as a side note, my grandmother could sing, uh, but she came from the Bloom side of the family where uh, clearly my, my musical ability came from the Levy side of the family. And as a random story, my grandmother in her later years suffered from Alzheimer's uh, and toward the end of her life, she became largely nonverbal. I'll never forget the last words she said to me. I went to visit her and she was resting on my grandfather's shoulders. She stirred, she looked up at me and all she said was, where's your hair? And then went back to lying on my shoulder. Uh, and those were the last words that my grandmother ever said to me. So very, very stark memory of the uh, only musical side of my family. Uh, and my third goal was to become a lawyer, uh, which, which goal I accomplished, but it turns out it sucked pretty bad. All that's to say, um, you've seemingly had some incredible ups and downs in your life. And I'd love to hear about your path and, and what put you on the path to music uh, and where you are today. And I've got a whole bunch of notes uh, about some of the things that I think are interesting, but I'll let you tell the story and then I'll pipe in with questions where further curious. Sure. I mean, where should I start at the beginning? We could be here all day. Start at, you know, maybe going to Duke, uh, which is a okay. great school. And what took you to Duke? What was your aspiration there? And, and how did uh, a, a life of, of music and beyond emerge from, okay. from that experience? Sure. Um, actually, I'll go just two months before I got to Duke University. I had an internship in Detroit 
at the hip hop radio station, um, Hot 102.7. And uh, I ended up meeting a, a young artist there named Sean. And we, we sort of became buddies. He, he let me become a part of his crew. He was a rapper. And I started to do beats for him. And uh, I had already gained admission to Duke University. So that September, or probably late August, I, I went down to North Carolina, left Detroit. Um, but my relationship with Sean um, maintained. So while I was in my dorm room, I had this little keyboard set up and some software I had pirated off the internet. And uh, I was making beats and recording songs into a cheap microphone when the other kids would go out to party. So dorm rooms, as you can imagine, are quite loud. Um, but there was always this sweet spot um, from, I don't know, 11 p.m. to 2.30 a.m. when people would actually go out, either parties or bars. And before those things closed and they returned, it would get loud again. Um, it was quiet from 11.32. So I could write songs all day, but in that little little opening, that window, I would record music. And much of it I would send to Sean. And a lot of it sort of became my own my own music. Uh, then while I was at Duke, he, he signed a record deal. And the world sort of knows Sean now by his stage name, Big Sean. But something sort of changed when he signed the recording contract it made the prospect of me becoming an artist believable in my own mind before that point music was something i loved and i knew i would do the rest of my life but i sort of believed i would have a quote-unquote normal job and i would do that yeah. on the side because you know becoming a recording artist is one in a million and then after sean got his record deal it it no longer occurred internally to me as one in a million, but one in two. And I went from believing, yeah, that probably would never happen to this is going to happen. Um, and, and I'm going to make it happen. And once that internal shift took place inside me, to where I actually believed, you know, I was going to get a record deal too. It was only about six or eight months that it actually did. And, um, I started putting music out from from my dorm room and it, the the song you referenced in our intro cooler than me was something I actually recorded in in my dorm and um people just started to sing it all over campus I thought this is weird you know and I was still in you know recording during that window but my friends would come back you know inebriated at 2:30 and go you never you never believe it they played cooler than me at the party and everyone knew the words I was like that never happened before, you know. And so thus began sort of my journey to being a professional recording artist. I had already been a recording artist for, geez, maybe close to eight or ten years, you know, but nobody really cared. <laughs> and that's when it became um, my, my vocation and uh, my excuse or my medium through which I, I – traveled the world and experienced the world very cool so you uh and allowed the world to experience me and allowed the world to experience me so it's a two-way street 
Uh, I want to explore that more. Um, I'm going to write that down to come back to it. Um, but I just want to get the kind of chronology of things out there because I think what I find so interesting about your story, uh, at least again, based on what I've read, it involved a lot of ups and downs. Uh, and I think you were quoted in one article being like, I thought I'd record a hit, you know, take my shirt off and then the, and the rest is kind of history. And it certainly didn't necessarily transpire maybe as you might have initially thought, or maybe exactly as you initially thought, I don't want to put thoughts into your head um, or, or answer these questions for you. But so you, you really, you have cooler than me and you signed with RCA. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. You know, so my, towards the end of my junior year in college, I started taking meetings while these record labels are flying me out during finals week. You know, I had a meeting with Jay-Z, when I was supposed to be writing my sociology paper. And you're correct. I ended up uh, choosing RCA from all my my suitors. My single, Cooler Than Me, just sort of exploded. That was my first single. Even though I had recorded it in the dorm, once I signed to the label and we got on the radio, it really exploded. And what ensued was this vast success um, beyond my wildest dreams. In fact, I even sort of like leapfrogged Sean professionally. And um, accompanied with that success was a large degree of disillusionment because I was a very insecure kid growing up. You know, I always felt like I didn't quite belong. And I remember having this thought at Duke, which was once I get this record deal, my internal experience of life of the present moment will be better. I will feel more comfortable in the center of my own experience, having acquired this external thing. And of course, you know, you don't even need to hear me say it, but of course I went about obtaining the thing, the record deal, and I got it. And I got this notoriety and I got this attention from the opposite sex and I got this money and my experience moment to moment of life was largely unchanged. I felt like pretty much exactly the same. And even though I felt the same, not worse, there was this disillusionment almost dread because before that moment, I always had the thing to look forward to. Once I get this, things will be better. And we all have a version of this, you know, I'm, I'm, I suspect many of our listeners and even those of us that have had this realization have new ones crop up. So um, if you're listening, you know, what is your, your version? It may not be a record deal, but often we as humans put something in the future to say, hey, once I get that, it'll all be okay. And I didn't have that thing anymore because I, I got to the point where it was supposed to all be okay and it was the same. That really started started me on the next chapter was this this darkness, um, this disillusionment. When did that darkness start? Um, like, how quickly did you go from being like, "Holy shit, I made it," and I know that feeling very clearly. Although, if I ever get a record label, I will actually have made it. So, I'm going to disagree with you on that one. But that's coming uh-huh. from me, a very different circumstance. But yeah, when, when did it turn? When did it turn because that would, like, that would be a prerequisite miracle for you guys. That's exactly You right. never know. If you uh, reassemble the Gentiles, some magic could happen. <laughs> it could. 
Um, With a name like that, yeah. Yeah. Geez, I'm not sure. Um, but probably a, a, a series of weeks. You know, probably in the, wow, in the two to four week range, you know, where it's like, hey, you know, this isn't like, this, this, I feel the same, you know, I feel the same. And um, this, this was the impetus for my sort of sadhana to begin my spiritual journey, which was, I got to ask this question, you know, at a very young age, which was, if not this, then what? If not material success, money the notoriety, the fame, et cetera, then what? What, it, what is going to change my moment-to-moment experience of life? And, you know, it's easy to sit here 10 years later and go, you know, and I just asked the question, but no, there's a, you know, I, I didn't know who I was. And then, of course, not only did, uh, was it hard during the successful part, but actually the success was chased, was followed very quickly with a period of a failure. You know, the next song I put out didn't replicate the success of Cooler Than Me. And um, basically a year or two later, I found myself not as the hot new artist anymore, but as the washed up artist. People would call me a one hit wonder at that time, which I guess by definition I was. I hadn't had my second hit yet, but I was just completely lost. My identity was wrapped up in first being successful and popular and then I wasn't successful and popular and I really was was sort of struggling and grasping to figure out um what's next what matters to me what what do I I had made some money and I had a house and then just like a completely empty calendar like what what do I even do now um and that sort of said about like my renewing of my vows to music and also the the birth of my spiritual path as well was i can only imagine that the shift from being the cool new thing to being the washed up art you know one hit wonder like the bigger they are the harder they fall was was that precipitously hard cuz i i can imagine that it's like well I mean, these days being a parent, my calendar is pretty empty most of the time, but it's kind of like that, that's kind of the trajectory of the life I was on anyway. So it wasn't such a, a profound shift from where, where I was going, but being the hot new thing to losing that, like I can imagine that must be devastating if you don't have a great, a well-established sense of idea, identity and, and, and direction. And listen, I still struggle with it to this day personally. Um, not necessarily in a social context, but in how I define myself and success and all that. And, and so did you find it like incredibly hard or were you just, were you able to just roll with the punches? Uh, it's hard. It's hard. Cause I can like compare it to how anyone else would have, would have felt, but yeah, it was, it was marked by also a, a real inauthenticity, which is, that's a funny turn of phrase, a real inauthenticity, meaning, <laughs> In LA, in the music scene, you know, what I really wanted at that time was to replicate the success. And, and the success is also addictive in some ways. You know, you start thinking like, there's also another party that goes, well, maybe you just didn't get enough. You know, maybe if you have more, then, then you would reach that feeling of security, happiness, et cetera, fulfillment. And the, the real authenticity was 
in order to try to replicate that you're going around from studio to studio or taking meetings with labels and and acting like this is all part of your plan sort of oh yeah i'm working on the new thing i you know i I have some big stuff coming all this stuff and inside is really this like existential dread that i just didn't really show to anyone um and certainly didn't have the the awareness or emotional intelligence to articulate at the time in my early twenties and this, this kind of thing. So, um, I think it was a, a really, um, a feeling of fear and a fear to communicate about the fear. So also I think I walled myself off a lot. I haven't spent a lot of time in Hollywood, but I get the sense. I, I mean, I think it's true in like our, our whole social media, Instagram world that you're only allowed to show one face of reality and that's got to be positive and uplifting. Otherwise you're harshing other people's vibes. And I imagine that's probably particularly pronounced uh, in Los Angeles. Um, sure. You know, everyone, I struggle with that to this day is there's this balance, you know, of, uh, like uh, you think of the law of attraction and you attract what you think about and what you speak about. And so you have a, you have a problem or a challenge. It's called a challenge. And it's like, well, how much, if I pretend like that's not there, you're sort of being fake. But there's also another end of the spectrum where I make a whole identity out of this challenge or this problem and the, and the victim story and this whole thing and actually perpetuate the problem. And so I think in my twenties, I was way, I was way too far on the not communicate and act like it's nothing, not even there. And actually like it kind of festers and metastasizes part of the spectrum. Um, and where, where you really want to be is sort of in the middle, you know? And so I've, I've sort of shifted this way, you know? So again, just continuing with the chronology, um, so you go through a, a bit of a, a down period, but you rededicate yourself to, to music, it sounds like. And, and a couple of your songs, from what I read, got picked up by some big artists. Um, how did that feel? Can you tell the story there? Sure. You know, so I was still recording music this whole time and actually fell, you know, back in love. I won't say back in love, but just recommitted to music because I sort of had this like a, uh, Steve Jobs moment where you know he got fired from Apple and it's like I'm sitting at the house I've made some money I'm in I'm young I go from like touring the world like you said taking my shirt off at shows and now the calendar is empty and I go what the heck do I do now and I sort of realized I still love music and so maybe I have some time now I don't have to tour I don't have to travel maybe I can use this time to actually get better at it And so I was always just writing, writing, writing. Um, I took the time to learn how to play instruments because before that I was just making beats and I rapped. um, But I learned to play the guitar and I learned to play piano and and took a lot of singing lessons. And during this time I was recording and, and I got what we call in the music industry, I was shelved. So I had this record deal still with RCA, but because my my sales were so low they're sort of looking at the charts or the trends of how my music is doing and going hey actually to to put out his next album will probably cost us more than we're going to make 
because you have to pay all the producers, the marketing costs, a lot of overhead, upfront costs that you hope to make back if the if the albums sell. And at that time, we we're actually selling real CDs still, <laughs> you know. And um, good old days. Yeah, just just the way my singles were trending, I thought, hey, you know, if we pay all those upfront costs, we're probably not going to get that money back. So what happened was I got what we call shelved, which just means like, hey, you can make all the music you want, but we're not going to put it out. And if something crazy happens, some song leaks out and it does well, we still own it. So it's kind of like they're just sitting on an asset but not using it. And uh, I thought, well, heck, I actually recorded an album called Pages, didn't come out, and I recorded another album called – actually, I recorded an album called Sky High and then another album called Pages. So I had two albums that actually – never came out if you look at my discography now i had an album come out in 2010 and then the next one didn't come out till 2016 and that's really what happened there were two other albums in there where they sort of got lost and occasionally like i would run into other artists at the studio or just through sort of backward you know uh uh behind the scenes like networks in the music industry some of my songs would get heard listened to by other artists and like in two cases, these artists kind of like begged me to to cherry pick one of the songs from these shelved albums and record for their albums. I just figured, heck, like my stuff isn't even coming out. So better off they sing it than it just sit on my laptop forever. And so that is how um, the song Sugar from Maroon 5 um, came to be or you know one part of how it came to be and um also how the song boyfriend for justin bieber came to be is the songs were recorded for my albums and all my albums but i took them off and and gave them to to them was that bittersweet how did or, or was that just like amazing it's awesome to see someone taking my work and, and running with it it was cool it was cool to um yeah also have to understand like when you have one, this one moment of success, you're thinking, well, may, maybe I just got lucky. And that actually does happen in music. Uh, you know, I can think of a few artists I won't name because it's kind of mean, but actually they have like this one really amazing song. And sometimes artists, I don't see me popular, but they have like one big hit song and it's actually a very good song, which, you know, are two different parameters, which sometimes can exist. Um, in concert, but not always, right? You have a popular song that's not good. You have a good song that's not popular. But you also have a popular song that is good. Sometimes you have people that have popular songs that are good, and then you listen to all of their other music, and it's like markedly worse. And it's like, how do you account for that? You know, they had a moment of inspiration or transcendence, and it just came out of it. You know, I don't know. But I was thinking, well, maybe I'm one of those guys. You know, maybe maybe I just had this one moment and you know i think what i'm doing now is good but maybe i'm crazy you know maybe it maybe i just like it because i made it and i'm biased well then boyfriend hits and it's like okay now you now you have two songs that lots of other people like lots and lots of other people like so like it's probably not luck you know it's probably not luck and then you have the third with sugar and it's like it's Okay, uh, maybe you know what you're doing a little bit, you know. And so those, those, it was just positive for me to. I, 
you know, people always ask, do you wish you kept it for yourself? It's like, I had it for myself, but it was, it was stuck. So it was the obvious choice and it was awesome. It was awesome. And it's still awesome. I hear those songs, tight, you know, I'll be in the elevator or I'm traveling, I'm in the gym somewhere and that one of those songs will come on and it's so cool, you know, and you look, you go, oh, oh, you know. That's awesome. At what point did you decide to pick up and move to Utah and live in a van with your guitar? Was that when the inspiration for some of these songs came out or was that after, um, you know, your two albums got shelved by RCA? Geez, I can't remember the exact timeline, but I remember it was after a breakup for sure. Okay. Uh, And I just sort of felt like bogged down by my own social identity. I thought, why don't I just get the heck out of here and see if I can figure out how to be happy without any of my stuff, without being who I am here and without all my like, uh, luxuries that I live with. I just live in this van, grow my beard and just kind of simplify things. And so I actually do rem- remember I had written this song kind of skipping ahead in the chronology, as you like to call it. <laughs> For me, it's like my boring life story. But, um, I remember I had recorded another song called I Took a Pill in Ibiza. And um, it was really about it was about this whole phenomena, you know, in, in the popular music scene, we, we do a really good job of documenting our ascension to success. And you'll hear lots of rappers or artists um, talking about and, and, and very eloquently and poetically and artfully describing their ascension from sometimes destitute circumstances to, to glory. And some of those stories are are very beautiful. But I, here I thought like, hey, I had this like ascension to glory, but now I'm actually descending away from glory into anonymity. And I actually don't really hear anyone write about that. And I'm going to try. I'm going to try to write about that in a way that's equally artful, poetic, and beautiful. And so that was, I took a pill in Abesis about not ascending to glory, but falling away from it and what that was like. Anyway, I put this song out and I didn't think too much of it other than I was also scared again because I thought, you know, prior to that point, all my music was very either hip hop or, or pop, you know, some somewhere between those two genres. And here I was putting out essentially a folk song and a folk EP. And I thought, well, you know, However dead my like career already is, like this is really gonna just like just seal the deal because my f- if anyone liked my music before, they're probably just gonna hate this because it's completely a different genre. In fact, I've even contemplated just changing my stage name and releasing under a different name. But I thought, hey, you know, so actually this is part of your story. This song's about you. So I put it out, and I was in the van. And I was just like not even thinking about anything in reg- in t- terms of my career. And then I got a call of like, hey, this song, you know, there's a remix of this song that's like number one in Norway. And I thought that's strange, you know. And then like it was number three in Sweden and it, it just started to, to spread sort of on its own. And I thought, you know, this is 
this is like impossibly ironic. Here's a song about me sort of like blowing my shot and it's giving me a second shot, you know, or it's a song about falling away from glory and now it's in some backwards way bringing more glory to my life. So then ensued another sort of career up, <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, there's, there's lots more, you know, between then and now too, it's, it's, in terms of my story, but um, I don't know if, if you have any thoughts on that, Ronan. I love hearing the story. I also love the vulnerability and authenticity with which you tell it, you know, it, it, it really is so beautiful to me uh, and, and super fascinating. You know, this is like, We've gotten to a point uh, in our society where I think being an entrepreneur is as glorified as becoming a musician in some ways. There's the cult of the hustle and all that kind of stuff. And in many ways, the experience is, is very similar, which is, you know, you work your ass off. It sounds like you got, I won't say lucky early, but you got lucky early in it, you know, with Sean and then getting a hit that led to a record label. So it may have not been the grind that some artists or entrepreneurs put into. No, because that's big, just where right? we started. Remember, you said started. That's dude. true. It is where we started. I know. Yeah. I know. It's, it was a lot of work before then, too. I started at age eight, actually, writing. And so it was a lot of yeah. years of just sucking and iterating and not being very good. Anyways, I interrupted you because I think the spirit of what you're saying is true, whether or not that's whether or not we get the minutiae details of my story correct. No, a hundred percent. And I, I wanted to acknowledge that, which is like, it wasn't an overnight success. It's like, I spent my whole life trying to get ready for the overnight success. Right. Um, yeah. and in many ways you had, uh, and it's funny, you know, I just, I, I had a conversation with, uh, pastors and a friend, Sanjay Singhal, uh, who quoted, I forget who it was, who said like, uh, the secret to entrepreneurship is staying alive long enough until you get lucky. Um, and, uh, and, in some ways that's true. And then you get that moment, um, and and then you get a lot of the I guess dopamine hits that probably go along with being a, a successful recording artist is like you start being popular, you have money, you know, you get invited to things, people are interested in you that didn't exist before, uh, and then depending on your trajectory, you hit that 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 plateau, and for a lot of time, a lot of the time, it's downward, it's that downward trajectory, and then. Much like being a recording artist, if you've got the hustle and, and, and the desire and the, and the fortitude and, and the know-how, you can turn that around and, and then you get your second shot. And hopefully with a little bit more wisdom, you go into that second shot so you don't uh, you know, come out guns blazing, buying the house and living the lifestyle. So that, that's really my, my next question. When, when you got, you know, uh, when you saw I took a pill in a visa reversed your descent uh, into an ascent did it feel different did you approach it with a, a new lens being like i'm not going to fall into the traps of of my first ascent or you know was it just as as much fun and and, and giddy as as the first time around it was certainly um experienced with with more gratitude and uh, appreciation for hey this is like this is actually kind of a rare thing so it's it's okay to enjoy it you know, and, and under and appreciate it. Be grateful for it because we know it comes after and up now, you know, eventually like no one stays at number one forever. You know, there hasn't yeah. been a song in history that got to number one and just stayed up there. They've all come down. So 
um, I remember feeling a greater sense of appreciation and awareness of the rarity of the moment and an intention to be grateful for it. Um, now, sort of during the real wave of I took a pill and Abiza's success, this wave was punctuated not by the song really falling down the, the charts, but, but actually by my father's diagnosis with glioblastoma, which is cancer of the brain. So, you know, I got a phone call one day when I was in L.A. and my mom said, your dad has a tumor in his head the size of a tangerine. They're going to take it out tomorrow. And so I just I just got on a plane and I went I went home and I essentially moved home while I had this like giant success. And you said in my intro, I got nominated for the Grammy. That's when I got nominated for the Grammy. But I was at home helping my dad transition from life to death. Um, during during that time and he died I think about 10 months after we got that diagnosis and um, I sort of had this feeling of possibility slash like a disillusionment wash over my life again like sort of a gray malaise like what like what's next and I washed back up, washed back up on the shores of LA, and found myself in recording studios. I made an album, actually, good album in my opinion, being my best album. But still, it felt like I had this sense that there was something more. Had to be something more, both inside me, and also like my life had to be more. It took me a while, another year, and then a friend of mine, uh, Avicii who was a wonderful producer and artist, he died. He killed himself. And then I realized, like, hey, you know, I too am going to die one day, hopefully not anytime soon. But before then, I really want to live my life. And I had this dream that I'd sort of put on the back burner for years and years, which was to walk across America. And I thought, well, I'm either going to do it or or I'm just going to live somebody else's life, you know? And um, that's when... I started to think in a real way, like, I want to, to do this thing. I actually had um, a psychedelic experience right before I started the walk with I sat ayahuasca. And it was actually like a really, really challenging experience. Like I, I always say, at no point during that sit was I having fun. You know, one of the big takeaways was, hey, you're, you know, you're sort of living a life you designed 10 years ago when you're 21 and you're 31 now. And while you actually have grown and your values have evolved in a, in an admirable way, your lifestyle hasn't like what you're actually doing with your time is the same. It's not needs to change. And I got affirming the intention that I didn't have to live the normal script of an artist's life, which is sort of to make an album, go on tour, make an album, go on tour, make an album, go on tour, go to Vegas, you know, like that wasn't going to be my my path and my journey. And there's nothing wrong with that path or journey should it be someone else's path or journey, but it just didn't feel like mine. I thought, well, you know, like I can sort of like make and create music and then go on this adventure. And I actually don't have to like go on tour after I put this album. I can sort of create my own like pick and choose what I like from from the playbook and 
and use it and kind of throw away the rest and create and and so that was really sort of a kick in the butt it wasn't a gentle nudge or a kind reminder it was a it was a real kick in the butt like you you need you gotta make some changes and while I already had the intention of going on the walk, it's sort of like the art artifice and scaffolding around that whole thing had to had to get stripped away and and rebuilt and so that journey was in November 2018. And my first step of the walk across America was April 15th, 2019. So I don't know how many months that is, like four or five months later. What was your reaction at that moment? Was it fear, anger, sadness, probably a combination? And then the question I'm actually more interesting in is how you started the story, which was you said the the artifice and scaffolding of the walk across America had to fall away or change. And I'm curious to know how how that changed. So where I remember like the artifice and scaffolding was not of the walk, but of like my whole life or the way I was a thought of myself, the way I related to the world, which was sort I guess before sort of a lens of like, trying to do something every everyone's gonna like trying to get back to that place of success i had been before like I, I just needed to stand at the center of my life and create from there instead of like trying to take polling data from outside sources and run it back through and back out it like it, it, it couldn't work that way anymore so that's really what i meant by that like I had to reconstruct what I thought my life was supposed to be and how it was supposed to work. And the questions that I would ask to even make the decisions on how to come upon the answers of, of what my life should look like and how it should be lived and what it meant for me to live a meaningful life. So that was really the thing. I think this is really important. Um, what were those changed questions that you were asking yourself? Because I think that's one of the, I'll just speak from my personal experience where I was going through the analysis of whether I wanted to do something or not. And it was a really hard question, you know, of like, is this the rest of my life kind of decision? And it's impossible to make those decisions. And so instead, for the first time, I flipped the question. I said, is this thing serving me? And that was a profound shift in, in the question because it was like, I can answer that. It's hard to make a decision to know what to do for the rest of your life, but I can answer the question, is this thing serving me right now? And that's an easy question to answer. That doesn't take much thinking at all. You know the answer immediately as soon as you ask that question. But also the shift in asking that question for me, uh, because I've spent a lot of uh, my last 43 and a half years or so uh, struggling with a sense of self-worth and all that kind of stuff, it was actually very profound shifting the question because asking from the question of does this serve me implies that I am deserving of something, which starts to fundamentally undermine that notion of worthlessness. Um, and so I'm really curious to know how your question shifted. I shifted from intention of comfort to intention of growth, you know, and I sort of like was trying to curate a life well, maybe my question without realizing it was like, how do I make my life more comfortable? So how do I get more attention from others, more money, um, more fame, more success? 
and, and curate this like sandbox so it's exactly perfect and nothing ever bothers me to how do I make things as uncomfortable as possible? Fuck this sandbox. Like I, I'm so tired of living inside here. I'm going to go and do something I don't know how to do that's going to hurt me physically. It's so out of my comfort zone. Challenge me in ways I don't even understand. I know going into this, there's going to be a period where I think this is a horrible idea. And I want to see if I can experience that and still keep going. Decide, you know, yeah, I understand this is horrible and I I don't want to do it anymore, but I'm going to do it anyways. Why? Because I said I was. So that was at that moment, that was sort of the shift I was making from comfort to, to discomfort on purpose. And, uh, it was everything, it was everything I ever could have wanted, you know, by the, the day before I got bit by a rattlesnake, I met this guy who was running across America and he was going the opposite direction. His name was Stevie. And you can imagine sort of the, the emotional poignancy of, of like crossing paths with this man on this road in Colorado, like there's two humans, like almost nobody knows what he's going through. Almost nobody knows what I'm going through, but we understand each other because we're both like in the middle of this wild journey. If you can imagine that moment of these two, these two humans meeting in the middle, both in the middle of their respective journeys. And one thing that struck me about him, I mean, there's a bunch that struck me about him, but one was for me, I ain't going east. Okay. I walk west. You know, it's like, this is hard enough as it is. Uh, every day I wake up, I can barely stand up. The feet, the pain come out of my feet were unimaginable. You know, the, like, it's just, it's just insane. You can imagine walking 1,797 miles. It's not like you're mixing in, you know, leg day, chest day, pull day. It's like, no, you're going to do the same muscle group. 12 hours a day, six days a week, every day, day after, you know, mile after mile, day after day. And we start even stop even counting miles. We're just counting distance by American states. Like it's just so everything changes, you know. And so, okay, finally there's someone here that gets that. And he walked west with me. I thought, wow, what, 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 a, what a guy. Because <laughs> like... As much as it's good to connect with you, Doug, I'm not going east. I'm not. I just. I'm not going east. He walked west of me, 16 miles, the wrong way. Okay, this is a man whose who's, his body's pushed to the limits. Right, he has this goal. He's running across America. He's got a big backpack on, and he's running 30 or 40 miles a day. He goes, I'm going to put 16 miles on my body that take me further away. So since action put 32 miles on my bot, you know, I have to get back. Okay. Like, wow. And then he says to me, he goes, what do you do about uh, music and headphones? You listen to music? I said, you know, I was like somewhat proud. I said, you know, the first eight miles, which is usually two and a half hours or so, I walk in silence. I do walking meditation. And I thought that was pretty cool, you know. And I said, what about you? What about you? Do you bring headphones? You listen to headphones? He goes, I didn't bring headphones. Wow. He goes, yeah, at first it was like the hardest thing ever to just be alone with my own mind all day, every day. Not eight miles, not two hours, 
all day, every day. He goes, but after the first like several weeks is the greatest thing I ever did. Best decision I ever made. Cause I just found a clarity that I didn't know was there. And so we had this amazing meeting, you know, I can't remember it was the next day or two days later, I, I was in the hospital and my legs swelled to like the size of an elephant trunk. You know, I had some crutches and the whole thing. And you know, I decided I had a real like option to quit there for option in quotations. I had a reason, which was like, I almost lost my, could have lost my foot. You know, if I didn't get to the hospital in time, I a foot or you could die. And if I quit, you know, no one's really going to even consider me a quitter because I got hurt pretty doggone bad. And so what I really have is like the most plush, beautiful, dressed up excuse of all time, you know, is like a lot of times we say like, it, it, and I think in this space, in some of the like spiritual or new agey circles that I'm a part of, you know, our self-love or self-compassion can can actually go too far into into weakness and letting ourselves off the hook, you know? So I just remember like, you know, people always say it wasn't meant to be. It was like a lot of times you're saying it wasn't meant to be. What are you really saying? You're really saying I quit. I quit. You know, here I am, like, I just got to the hospital five days. I can't walk. And my goal is to walk across America, I have a thousand miles left. Like if, if there was, ever was a time it wasn't meant to be, this was it, you know? But I decided like, no, I'm gonna make it meant to be. Like I, I said, I'm going to walk across America. And I thought about this before I left. If I get hurt, I'm gonna go back to the place. I got hurt and I'm gonna finish. And so I did the rehab, I did the PT and everything doctors said. And eventually like I, and I was walking pretty good. And then it was like, well, you go back or not, you know, because even though my leg was better, the only thing waiting for me was blistering foot pain, sweltering heat, snake riddled shoulders of roads. You know, if there was a shoulder and, and semi trucks coming way too close to, to my shoulder. So you can stay here at home and have your nice cuddly use or you can go back to hell. And be the person, the man you actually want to become. And I decide I'm going back. You know, I'm going back. This is like exactly what I talked about before I left. It's like, I'm going to feel at some point I don't want to do this. But that's why I made a commitment. Like, that's why you make commitments in life. If you, if, if you knew it was going to be easier, if you knew that at all points you would be enthused about completing the task, you wouldn't even have to make a commitment. Right, you would just go do it. It's like you know, I gave my word to this, and it's this is a crossroads in my life. You know, and become like go back to the sandbox or go forward to become the person I want to become. And so I went back, and dude, I was scared. You know, it's like I'm having nightmares about snakes and all stuff, but but I just went back to this exact spot where it bit me, and I took another step, and I kept going. And I sort of made this vow, which was when I go back, I want to do the rest like Stevie. So I said, you know, like, uh, I'm not going to um, bring headphones back. I'm not going to ever listen to music or talk on the phone or distract myself in any way. I'm just going to be alone on the roads. And before that, I let people come. Like fans were allowed to join me. And I shut that down. 
I said, it's just, it's just me. And, and also I said, I'm not going to um, masturbate or have sex. It's like 1,000 miles. I'm going to just do it like Stevie. And so I just, I kept taking steps. I walked up and over the Rocky Mountains. I walked across Colorado, across Navajo Nation, across Arizona, across California, across Mojave Desert, across L.A. And six months and three days after my first step from the Atlantic Ocean, 2,851 miles later, I, I dove into the Pacific Ocean. How did it feel? It felt like a beginning, surprisingly. One would expect you'd feel accomplished or like I was finished. And I just felt like, what's next? Give me what's next. I'm ready for what's next. And uh, I called, uh, even though my body was pretty jacked up, like I needed to rest, you know, my feet were hurt. I needed my spirit and my mind to know that this was not the end of anything. This was the beginning of something. And I was also like, I just didn't want to go back to the sandbox. And I could see like, actually the most important part of this journey is like the next day. What do you do? Because I could just see myself just going back to the person I was before the walk. Like it was an intermission. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to launch off of the walk. So I didn't know exactly what to do next. But I knew I needed to tell my, my spirit and my mind, we're not done. We're just starting. Even though my body needed to rest. So I called this, uh, this uh, boxing coach I know. And I said, hey, man, I need you to meet me at 4.30 tomorrow morning. Because I also I get up to walk every day. It was 4 a.m. So I said, I wake up at 4 a.m. tomorrow also. Even though it walks over, I'm going to 4. So he said, okay. And I got up. And like I said, man, I was like the tin man. You know, I could barely like move. It's so stiff. Like it was bad. You know, it's bad. And at the time, also, you don't know. Thankfully, I've healed up now. But like at the time, I thought, you know, this might be permanent. Now, I don't know what I've done to my feet, my knees, my leg. Like, like, I might feel like this the rest of my life. But I said, I got, I got to let my spirit know this. I'm, I'm not. So I went that morning, four thirty, and I hit mitts. I jumped rope, and and I just I sent a loud message to my my spirit. Like this, this, this beginnings hide themselves, and this is the beginning. Two weeks later, uh, I climbed my first mountain. Climbed Mount Hood with my friend Colin O'Brady. I started to research Everest and slowly my, my dream, I had this dream of climbing Mount Everest and it started to mutate from a dream into a plan. Well, to everyone else, like it really seemed like two different journeys it is really like one thing for me. It's not, I didn't, I didn't go unpack my bags. You know, it's like, I didn't, ha I didn't even have a house to go back to. Like I, I started climbing, you know, and uh, the next year and a half, I climbed basically full time and I climbed 71 mountains with my coach, Dr. John Kudrowski. In April uh, 2021, we we took a plane to Nepal and uh, hiked six days to get to Everest Base Camp and looked up at what we hoped would be number 72. It's Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world. And Pause. <laughs> Pause. <laughs> Dramatic any, effect. Yeah, any questions? <laughs> Any questions? Uh, no, listen, I, I actually love uh, I love the story. I love how you're telling it. I love the insights that you've shared. 
you know, at certain at a certain point, music re-entered the picture, uh, or was always happening in parallel to this journey. And I'd love to hear that. But let's talk about actually climbing Everest, and then we can circle back to, you know, uh, the album a "Real Good Kid," and and then your most recent one, or at least your most recent track, which is uh, "Not Dead Yet." Uh, but let's talk Everest first. Sure, Everest is. You know, people always say, "How long does it take? How long does it take?" Well. I had no mountaineering experience, never worn crampons, never held an ice axe. I just knew I didn't want to go there unless I belonged there. I had no interest in going until I was a mountaineer, but I was, I was just a dude who had walked really far. And uh, my first training climb with, with John, I didn't know how to wear crampons. I was chasing him behind. I didn't know I turned my headlamp on the right color. I was trying to follow his footsteps as he went up and I noticed that his heels never touched the mountain. He sticks his, just the balls of his feet in and then pushes up as if he's on stairs. And I thought, she like, how strong is this guy's calves? You know? And it's like, I couldn't do it. And I was looking up at this ridge line. I thought, we'll just get to that ridge line. And I, I got to the ridge line and uh, okay, that's when the wind start, hits you. And it's like 40 mile an hour winds. And, I didn't know what I was doing and, and like I had way too much stuff in my pack because, you know, you're going out in the winter and you don't want to have not enough. But when you don't know what you don't need, the pack is heavy and I'm sweating and the sweat is freezing and cold. Finally, I make it to the summit with John and I didn't even know I was on the summit of this training climb. And he goes, he goes, get, drink some water. So of course I didn't have the water in the side of my backpack, you know, the little water uh, bottle, like pouch on the side of a backpack course where i kept my water so it's good easy access so i take it out and it's of course like duh it's a just one water bottle full of ice so i have no water i mean just like mistake after mistake we're going down the mountain and through this gully and 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 john's sort of like going going and kind of gracefully going through this snow that's kind of coming up to his knees and and it kind of looks like padding, and I'll go. Oh, like I'm tired. But at least I know how to can just like follow him. And if I fall, and then like I I step in this, and instead, boom! Instead of sticking to my knee, I sink all the way to my shoulder, and I slam my knee on a rock. And he goes, "Oh, dude, that's trapdoor snow. Be careful of that. You know, like it's not all even." And it's just like, okay, I realize, like I don't know anything. I don't know what I like. Yeah, I walked across America, but this is it's like. I have to start from zero, zero. Walk across America with six months. This is going to take me a year and a half, triple that, just to get there before I even go. Yeah. So all I have to say, the expedition is, was two months long, but is really like 18 months long journey for me. I got there and it's COVID, COVID. So it was very strange times. Like we didn't even know if we'd be able to go. Um, one side of Everest was closed. There were teams that were have outbreaks and they would leave. And it was just a lot going on in regards to that. And it's just a mind game because you sit in ba base camp is at 17,300 feet. Okay, it's very high. The tallest mountain in the continental United States is 14,400 or something like that. It's Mount Whitney. So they're 3,000 feet higher than the summit of Mount Whitney is, is base camp. And what I can't explain to you is the paralyzing, demoralizing, body crippling, oxygen depriving, 
effect that the altitude has. And the, the, the effect um, compounds over time. Everybody's dip body's different. But for me, the longer I was there, the, like you sort of acclimatize a little bit to base camp, 17,000 feet. But at the same time, there's parts of you that are just falling apart and they're getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And we're just waiting for our shot for the weather. When every morning we get meteorology reports from some of the best meteorologists and we look at them, study them. We try to make decisions about when the best time to go is. And other teams are different people. They make different decisions. It's uncomfortable just to be alive there. Uh, human body is not really meant to hang out. There's no permanent settlements at 17,000 feet in the whole world. Okay, and there's a reason for that. But we're going to stay here for a few months, you know. And uh, so it doesn't feel good. And so these other teams, you know, they make different decisions with the weather. They, make, they go up. And most of them, you know, they go up, they, they're successful. They come down. And what you feel when they come down is jealousy, actually, because you want to go home. You feel bad. You say, well, they're already done, man. They get to go home. And uh, at the same time, there's a small percentage of people that go up before, went up before us, and, and they didn't come down at all. They died in the mountain. And instead of feeling jealousy, a feeling of like, what am I doing here? You have to really grapple with that. Really grapple with your why. And if you don't have a, a why, one good why. For me, before I left, I had like four whys. One was like, hey, um, I want to explore my potential, see how tough I am, you know, become somebody I'm proud of. Okay, number one, I want to do it which is a bad reason. I knew that before I left the bad reasons. Like I want to be a guy who climb Everest. That's not more than 50%, but it's in there, you know? And so let's be honest about it. And then I have, I gave my word to it. Now over time, reason number one, which is I want to explore my potential and myself. This is normally a good thing within certain parameters, but as you get further up the mountain, and you see dead bodies, people that were alive two weeks ago doing the thing you're doing are, are now dead. Actually, this reason is like kind of falls apart of self-exploration actually just becomes selfish, you know, because while it is a good thing to do to explore oneself, and your potential and push your limits, it's actually kind of a stupid thing to die for, right? There's, there's things that I would argue that are worthy to die for one's family. Um, you know, like my mom's another like protected my mom. You know, it's like that's a good reason to die. You know, you know. Hopefully, that never has to happen. But that would I like. We could argue on a moral basis would would probably be a moral reason. Most of us would say, yeah, that'd be something worth dying for. But to explore your own toughness, I don't. I don't think that really makes the cut. You know, so that's a good thing to explore in certain parameters. But at the at the at its extreme, kind of becomes silly. So that reason fell away. That's reason number one. Second reason was I want to be a guy climbs Everest. We already I already knew before I left that was a bad reason. All right. So that reason's out. So now I'm left with just one why. It's the one you wouldn't expect, which is I'm at camp two. An avalanche almost hit our tent last night. I'm the worst I ever felt, and I'm not even. I'm only at camp two. There's four camps for the summit. 
this is incredibly dangerous. All these things are pulling me downwards. They're all reasons for me to go down the mountain. And the only thing left was I said I was going to do it. I gave my word to this. I committed to it. Right or wrong, I'm going to honor it. It was the only why that stood up. The only thing that, that kept that was pulling me upwards instead of down. And so I went to camp three. I went to camp four. Uh, we could talk about psychedelic experiences. I had a psychedelic experience at camp four with uh, <laughs> no medicine Black necessary, <laughs> bro. <Yeah. laughs> um, I, I got to camp four and uh, you get there at about 11. So imagine like each day, each of these days, like a marathon from from base camp to two, two to three, three to four. It's like, a, imagine a marathon, 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 and you can't stop. Like if you run the New York Marathon, you want to quit. Like take take the subway home. Like this, you quit, you die, right? Like no one, no one's there to take you down. Once you get above two, if you don't get yourself down, you don't come down. Period. That's what makes it so dangerous. It's like you a small thing, you twist the ankle, break your knee, or something like that. Like that's that's pretty much death. More commonly, just like just exhaustion. I forgot what I was talking about. Oh, camp four. So I'm at camp. So I get to camp four, and I'm at like this is after two to three. This is after like three marathons, but with no oxygen. And you get there at 10 a.m., and we're gonna start getting ready at 6 p.m. to leave again. So it's like it's not like you're sleeping between the marathons either. <laughs> like so, it's cra- it's just crazy. The level of fatigue is nuts. And I was just sitting there in that window at camp four. I got there at 10 or 11. I have till six. And just try to rest for a little bit for like this moment that I've been training for for a year and a half. Like this is it finally. And I close my eyes to rest and I just start seeing like lattice work and geometry and all these colors and just this feeling of well being kind of washed over me. Like it's all gonna be okay. And like I remember the feeling contextualized what I was doing because it was so in it. Like it was everything to me this experience, this psychedelic experience, we call it that, like it zoomed, it zoomed out. It was like, man, this is just a thing you're, it's just a thing you're doing. And it's not you. And it actually like doesn't really matter that much if you make it or not. You're probably going to, but just, just go and, and do it. And, and like, actually there's, you know, this is like one small part of, of your life. And it was like kind of with that, that, feeling that i started the summit push and eight hours later at 4 35 a.m um my team dawador j sherpa dawa cheering sherpa rest in peace he recently passed away unfortunately um this year and dr john kajowski we, we made the summit of everest and is the most beautiful if not the most beautiful moment of my life i can't tell if it's the most beautiful because i i often find myself talking about it because uh, people are curious and I oblige them. Um, but it's definitely one of the most beautiful moments of my life. That's awesome. Um, kudos for surviving. Um, Thank you. And, and that's only halfway, <laughs> but you know, so more importantly, we got down, got down safe. Got down. Yeah. And I remember thinking, man, I remember I said this to like, I was like, yo man, people, People in LA, they always do want to do ayahuasca or something. I said, you go up here, man. This will change your life real quick, man. 
<laughs> oh, you want to talk? I was just, I just felt like, yeah, talk about a journey, both external, but or talk about an external journey, creating an internal journey. It really had that effect on me. That that that's what I first compared it to. Was was a was sitting ayahuasca. It was like that. It was like that. Indifferent in all the obvious ways, but but very similar in, in terms of the internal change it created. And how has this experience changed the trajectory since then? What uh, what 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 was next after that? Because in, in many ways, I could see that having the same traps as success as a musician or as an entrepreneur, which is you hit peak literally and, and figuratively um and then what so how did you navigate that yeah man so it's a great question and actually it, it changed it changed me in all unexpected ways which was i thought i would feel proud and i would it would be motivation for me to launch into my next thing make more dangerous more crazy it wasn't like that at all the actual effect it had on me was a reminder of how beautiful it is to be just be here just be alive so people often ask me what's next what's next and of course that's like if we we change the context that question it's like the worst question ever we can ask as humans trying to be present on our journey there is no next there's only here right and i'm not trying to sidestep the question but this actually was the was how the mountain experience affected me which was there is no next mike there is only here and look like you 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 rolled the dice right there and luckily you're still alive you're still alive and what my intention was if if we could call this a next what my next thing was was to be more here to be more present enjoy this and do I still have external goals? Absolutely. I have financial goals, I have musical goals, I have health goals, I have all sorts of goals that I'm working towards. But as our mutual friend Joe says, it's like these are these goals are just like little games that you move the move the ball on the field a little bit each day and, and but that's it. They're they're games. And do I forget it? Yep, all the time. But really my intention looked like is to be here. And uh to be an invitation for others to be here, for us to join one another in, in presence. And um, I try to do that in my music. And so I recommitted to my music right now. It's not on the, well, it was always going in parallel, like you said, with, during these adventures. It wasn't um, the main thing. Now it's sort of like the main thing I work on. And I have a sort of beautiful job where if I do it well, actually I can accomplish, I can invite people into presence through, through that as well, whether I'm playing it live or through the actual recordings. And so that's, that's sort of what I'm up to. That's awesome. I, 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 I wish I had something more eloquent um, <laughs> to say about that, but I, I listen, I, I love that. And this is a podcast ostensibly about psychedelics. And besides one reference to ayahuasca, and a oxygen deprived trip. <laughs> this has been the most psychedelic 
conversation in, in, in the purest, most elegant, eloquent way that I think I've ever had. Because this, your story right here that you've expressed so beautifully, to me, is the psychedelic journey. It's not about the drugs. It's not about the trips. It's not about how often you do it. It's about every step you take and every decision that you make and having the awareness and presence uh, to be conscious of that and tapping into those things outside of us um, that in our modern Western digital scientific world, we forget about almost every day. And psychedelics are a great reminder of that. But you don't need the drugs for it. It's always there. You, as your story uh, and your experiences have shown us, is that we just got to wake up to it. Um, and we forget but then we wake up again uh, and, and keep on it. And, and I think you've done a great job of being in it more than a lot of people. So I, I listened to your story with awe, um, with envy in a, in a positive way. And, you know, I, I don't really have any other questions. It's like, it, this is, this is, this is it. This is exactly it. Um, for lack of a better term. So I'm going to stop there and, and just say, thank you, man. This has been thank so beautiful. You. Thank you for sharing it so elegantly. And I guess uh, if there's any invitation that you would want to make to uh, anybody listening right now, uh, this is a great opportunity to do so. Uh, besides obviously checking out Not Dead Yet, uh, which I really appreciate the video. Um, but uh, anything else that... Uh, you'd like to share, please do. Otherwise, I'll just thank you for your time. Invitation. I think if someone's made it this far into our chat, they're probably in a space where it's safe to ask them the following, which I would ask, like, we'll just take three breaths together. I would ask you, close your eyes. And... We'll take one breath in gratitude for where we are and who we're with. So we'll take that breath now to breathe in and feel the gratitude for where you are and who you're with. Let it go. And let's take a second breath of gratitude for the journey that brought us to this moment. Inhale and let go. And let's take one final breath for ourselves. Gratitude for ourselves. Breathing in, letting go. And Posner is out. <laughs> That was amazing, Mike. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. We really appreciate it. There's a song whose lyrics are as follows. This is what a sad song sounds like. It's been playing in my head for my whole life. It's beautiful and cruel at the same time. And this is what a broken heart beats like. It's tearing up my chest like a jackknife. But it gets me through the good and the bad times. 
Given the subject of this interview, I'm sure it comes as no surprise that these lyrics are from Mike Posner's latest song, Not Dead Yet. But beyond being a shameless promote from this newfound fanboy of Mike's, I actually find the lyrics particularly meaningful because, like Mike, they represent one of the most important conversations I feel like society isn't having these days, and that is the multidimensional, infinitely textured, exceedingly complex thing that this existence actually is. Songs can be beautiful and cruel. Your heart can be the source of indescribable pain, yet you can love it for getting you through the good and bad times. You can have empathy for people and still believe in progress. You can have your career skyrocket only to crash, only to skyrocket again and come out the other side more level than you went in the first time. This is the psychedelic journey. This is what it's all about. It's about allowing everything that there is to allow into your life and using it as a guide to help you find out who you are and what you're doing. Yes, this may sound like metaphysical mumbo jumbo. I get that. But I'd swear on everything that I find to be good and holy that this is it. This is the journey that we are all on. And I have to say, I've met very few people who can so deftly and poetically and thoughtfully articulate and express it. So, speaking personally, I'm genuinely grateful that Mike is not dead yet, and I hope you are as well. Thank you for listening. As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review Field Tripping wherever you get your podcasts, and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtriphealth.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page, and associate producer is Macy Baker. Thanks to our production team at Legacy Media, and of course, big thanks to Mike Posner for joining us today. To keep up with his whereabouts and to listen to his music, click the link in the description.